Greetings. Joseph Kursky here with you on another edition of the Thinking Spatially podcast series. Thanks for joining me. On this podcast, we think spatially about the Earth, everything that's in it, and beyond. Today's installment, Harrison, Solving the Longitude Problem. Harrison, Solving the Longitude Problem. Determining absolute location on the Earth's surface is critical to the study of geography in order to locate places, events, and phenomena, uncover spatial relationships, and create maps. Determining one's latitude gradually improved over the centuries with a series of devices such as the cross staff and sextant by measuring the angle of the sun and stars in the sky. However, by the 18th century, determining one's longitude remained elusive and given expanding global exploration and trade, was becoming an urgent global problem. A single naval disaster off the Isles of Scilly, S-C-I-L-L-Y, in 1707, for example, cost Britain's Royal Navy four warships and nearly 2,000 sailors' lives. In addition, the standard practice of sailing to a desired latitude and then sailing due east or west instead of the more direct Great Circle route was wasting time and money for the world's navies and merchant fleets and the countries and companies that supported them. Shipwrecks and inefficiency prompted the British Parliament to pass the Longitude Act in 1714. The Act established a Board of Longitude and offered monetary rewards, initially £20,000 or £2.81 million in today's currency to within half of one degree of longitude to anyone who could find a simple, practical method to determine a ship's longitude. Other efforts and prizes were in the offing in France and the Netherlands. Since the Earth rotates at 360 degrees per day, or 15 degrees per hour, there is a direct relationship between time and longitude. If someone on a ship therefore knew a distant reference time and could compare it to the local time on the ship, these two times could be compared, and the longitude could be computed. Determining local time was fairly straightforward, depending especially if there were sunny days or clear nights, but determining the distant reference time was difficult. In part because of this, and in part due to the long history of astronomical observations by the scientific community hearkening back to Ptolemy and Eratosthenes' day, with subsequent work by Werner, Galileo, and Halley, astronomers believed they could determine longitude based on the positions of stars and planets. Astronomers held that pendulum clocks were too unreliable at sea on a ship that pitched and rolled with the waves. Scientists such as Newton and Huygens favored a lunar calculation method, but this proved challenging. Early trials involved four hours of effort, required clear days and nights, and was notoriously inaccurate. Still, the lunar calculation method was widely used throughout much of the 18th century. Cabinet maker and clockmaker John Harrison, 1693 to 1776, proposed that a mechanical timepiece to be carried on a ship could maintain the correct time at a reference location. In fact, he devoted his life to pursuing the study of horology, or time. 
Harrison built five clocks over his lifetime. Just five clocks, but they were very influential, as you'll see. Named H1 through H5. Why was it a lifetime pursuit? First, Harrison was a perfectionist, continually refining his work. And similarly, the evolution in electronics during the 20th century that resulted in ever smaller components, each of Harris's, Harrison's clocks were smaller and more accurate than the one before it. H1 was nearly one meter tall. H5 was pocket-sized. Even in his first two chronometers of 1735 and 1739, they gained only one second each day. Pretty amazing. Second, the Board of Longitude, heavily influenced by the astronomy research community that had been established for decades at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, kept increasing its demands of Harrison. They likely were jealous of Harrison as well, since he was a self-educated man and outside the establishment. Harrison was born in West Yorkshire, England, beginning his work life by entering his father's trade of carpentry. An attack of smallpox at the age of six may have been decisive in shaping his life. While convalescing, he became fascinated by a watch that his parents, seeking to amuse him, had laid on his pillow. He never forgot that watch. As part of his trade, he built his first long case clock out of wood at age 20. Harrison was 21 years old when Parliament announced the Longitude Prize. Once fixed on the longitude problem, he faced the challenge of not only making a clock that could withstand a ship's pitching and rolling, but also one that could withstand variations in temperature, pressure, and humidity, as well as withstanding corrosion in salty air. It took him five years to build his first sea clock, which was deemed worthy of trial by the board. He abandoned the second clock after noting a design flaw and took 17 years to build the third. The problem with the first three clocks was mainly due to the fact that their balances, though large, did not vibrate quickly enough to confer the property of stability on the timekeeping. Therefore, around 1750, Harrison abandoned the idea of the sea clock as a timekeeper, realizing that a watch-sized timekeeper would be more successful, as it could incorporate a balance which, though smaller, oscillated at a much higher speed as well as be more practical. His subsequent watch, requiring six years of work, was the first to compensate for temperature variations and also contained the first going fusee that Harrison designed, which enabled the watch to continue running while being wound. This H4 resembled an oversized pocket watch at 13 centimeters in diameter, completed in 1759. It incorporated the innovative and difficult use of diamond, which, with vibrations controlled by a flat spiral steel spring and a seconds motion with a sweep seconds hand, running at five beats or ticks per second. All watches and clocks tend to run more slowly with a rise in temperature. Harrison invented a special form of compensated pendulum using a grid of brass and steel wires to ensure that his clock kept time regardless of temperature. He also designed his clocks to run without the need for any oil. In the 18th century, clock oil was derived from animal fat, often quickly deteriorating into an acidic glue. By designing and incorporating bearings that used rolling contact instead of sliding contact, Harrison's anti-friction bearings sidestepped this problem, requiring no oil. Furthermore, Harrison was revolutionary for his adoption of watches for his later timepieces, because at the time, watches were dismissed as trivial pieces of jewelry. Harrison began working on his second sea watch, or H5, 
while testing was conducted on the first. He felt, quote, extremely ill-used by the gentleman who I might have expected better treatment from, end quote. He decided to enlist the aid of King George III. King George tested the watch himself at the palace, and after 10 weeks of daily observations during 1772, finding it to be accurate to within one-third of one second per day. Hmm. King George then advised Harrison to petition Parliament for the full prize after threatening to appear in person to chastise them. Finally, in 1773, when he was 80 years old, 80 years old, Harrison re received a monetary award from Parliament for his achievements and was recognized for solving the longitude problem. Talk about tenacity, eh, folks? Although the cost of chronometers remained high during the following 50 years, they became increasingly common after the price dropped. Harrison's revolutionary influence on geography only increased over the following decades and centuries and cannot be underestimated. It was felt through increased volume and scale of ex exploration and trade, from ships that were now much more confident in their location. This in turn had a profound impact on land use, urbanization, migration, culture, language, and much more from local to global scale. Urbanization, supply chain management, and much more. Therefore, Harrison was finally vindicated at the end of his life, but furthermore, respect for him grew after his death. During the early 20th century, retired naval officer Rupert Gould restored his original timepieces, time in other words, Harrison's original timepieces, and ensured that they were housed in the Royal Observatory. Dava Sobel's book, Longitude, became the first popular bestseller on horology. I highly recommend that book. It's one of my favorites of all time. The illustrated longitude in which Sobel's text was accompanied by 180 images selected by William J.H. Andrews appeared in 1998. After the book was dramatized for television, Harris's, Harrison's story was suddenly widely known. Still more vindication was to come. One of the more controversial claims of Harrison during his later years is that he built the most accurate land clock. This clock, tested during 2015 at Greenwich, showed that it kept time to within one second over 100 days, awarded a prize in the Guinness Book of World Records, and further vindicating Harrison. Yay! During the late 20th century, the honored guest at a dinner at 10 Downing Street was an American, who rose to propose a toast to John Harrison. Harrison's invention, he said, this the man said that was proposing the toast, enabled people to explore the earth with precision and when most of the Earth has been explored, to dare to build navigation systems for voyages to the moon. You, ladies and gentlemen, started us on our trip. The speaker was astronaut Neil A. Armstrong. And that was some thoughts and reflections on John Harrison solving the longitude problem. Harrison solving the longitude problem. Thank you for joining me on this edition of the Thinking Spatially podcast, where we think spatially about the Earth, everything that's in it, and beyond. Joseph Kursky, your host, wishing you a spatially enabled day. Thank you.